0: You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.
1: If you start looking for it, you can almost see who is going to lose a particular election. Because somewhere in there, they will let slip that either they hate TV or they hate being packaged in this way. and. Almost inevitably, it's the candidate who's willing to be packaged and sold and like dumbed down and like, I don't know, monetized, that is the one who wins.
0: From I Like Ike to Make America Great Again hats, branding and politics have gone hand in hand, selling ideas, ideals, and candidates. Political Brands, the new book from Chara Torres Spillacy, is a unique exploration of the legal framework for the use of commercial branding and advertising techniques in presidential political campaigns, as well as the impact of politics on commercial brands. On October 30th, the Ash Center hosted spellacy a professor of law at Stetson University, for a discussion of her latest book. The talk was moderated by Miles Rappaport, senior practice fellow in American democracy at the Ash Center.
2: ...is bring authors and other people who are involved in democracy work around the country uh, to come and talk to us about the things that they're thinking about, uh, acting upon, and writing about. And so it was, I was delighted at the possibility that Chiara Torres uh would come and talk to us today. So I've known Chiara for a long time. Uh, before she was, a, she's now a professor, law professor at, this, at Stetson University in Florida, uh, has been there for nine years. Uh, but prior to that was a colleague of mine, uh, when she worked at the Brennan Center for Justice in New York, where she was one of the lead people on voting rights, campaign finance reform, corruption, and other kinds of issues. So, um, oh, all right, so I have to read this. This is what she's, this is, this is, these are the subjects that she teaches at Stetson. Election law, corporate governance, business entities, and constitutional law. So there's a little bit of a wide-ranging uh, set of expertise, and her uh, biography tells us why that's true. Um, she got her BA here at Harvard um, and a law degree at Columbia. Uh, she first worked in Congress, uh, was a staff person for uh, Senator Dick Durbin, um, still fighting the good fight. Mm-hmm. Did a little, uh, what you call it, um, little uh, required stint in corporate law at Arnold and Porter, and then went to the Brennan Center. And she's been at Stetson, as I said, for nine years. So given that spread of activity, it's not a surprise that when she went actually to write a book, she didn't start in the place that that, um, campaign finance reform advocates or voting rights advocates usually start. She started from a corporate perspective and wrote about the issue of branding. This is her second book, Political Brands, uh, right here. Uh, Purchase for the purchasable for the small price of one hundred and forty-five dollars. If you want the dead tree version, it's much cheaper <laughs> as an ebook. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but our second book, but our first book, which is also here, is corporate governance. So uh, an argument for separation of corporations and the state. So this book, political brands, is different because it starts with the idea that branding, in and of itself, is a concept that we need to understand and look at and seriously. Uh, Think about because it is um, invading, infecting, overtaking, um, you know, people in our society in many, many ways, not just in uh, corporate advertising, but in the legal landscape with political parties, political candidates. And she writes about the malicious uses of branding, but consistent with her work at Brennan's at the Brennan Center and as an advocate, not just an author. Uh, she also talks about ways that branding can be used for good and that advocates and activists can uh, do that. And also befitting the Brandon Center, uh, has ends the book with a long list of policy reforms, all of which will be enacted very shortly, I can assure you. Anyway, we're delighted that you're here. Uh, we are looking for you to help us change America for the better. And I'm very, very glad to introduce you. I think what we'll do is, uh, Sharon says she has a a, um, a slideshow. Uh, called from one of the chapters of the book, Mm -hmm. uh, which is about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, And after that, we'll open up for questions. I have a few that I'd like to ask her, but we'll go from there. So, Chara. Thank you. Welcome. A little applause here.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, Good evening. Let me try that again. Good evening. Good evening. All right. So, uh, I do that for a couple of reasons. One, to wake you up. It's late in the day. Uh, And I need your participation in a few key moments. So I hope you will be generous with your thoughts and actually participate. I can wing it if you won't. But let's try it. Okay, so I'm going to talk about lawyers, guns, and money in my new book, Political Brands. But I'm going to start here. This is a picture of my father, who was also a Harvard graduate. uh, And he was an artist and a very creative thinker. And when I was a youngster, he would say to me, chara, (laughs) remember to ask the big questions. So the big question that I've been working on for about a decade at this point is what's the proper role of corporate money in a democracy? This was the subject of my first book, Corporate Citizen, and I think if I'm being honest, it's the subject of my second book too, uh, Political Brands. So, ah, oh yes. Before we get to <laughs> before we get to um, political brands, I think we have to think about how branding actually works, and this is where I need your participation um, because I think a, a useful heuristic. Wait one
2: second. Before you participate, I want you to know that you are being recorded for audio purposes, and there are pictures <laughs> being taken for the sake of the Kennedy Center. So I will repeat. And the Kennedy School.
1: <laughs> I will repeat your response so that it it, it is. Properly audio recorded. So um, if we think about the Santa Claus myth, I think that is a good way to learn how branding actually works. So here's the question on the table. Uh, why does the average four-year-old think that Santa is real? You must have some opinion on this. Why does a four-year-old think that... It's in popular media. Okay, because it's in popular media. Any other reasons why a four-year-old would think it's real? because they're told that it is. Yeah, I think these are the two big reasons. So one of the ways to think about a four-year-old and why they would fall for the Santa Claus myth is they live in an information silo. Most four-year-olds are only getting information from their parents, and mostly parents will tell four-year-olds truthful things, which is why it is so pernicious and effective when they lie to their four-year-old. Because if you get a lie through a network of trust, you're more likely to fall for it. Another thing that uh, I I think perpetuates the Santa Claus myth is it works on a deep psychological level. Um, Whether that's wanting to be rewarded for good behavior, or even beyond that, the idea that there's someone who just wants to give you toys and sweets sounds pretty awesome. And then thirdly, truth tellers are very easy to dismiss. So for the average four-year-old, the only person who will tell a four-year-old that Santa Claus isn't real is another child, typically a sibling, typically a sibling that's being a jerk at that moment. <laughs> and so when, this, when the truth teller actually shows up and says Santa isn't real, there's a deficit of, account, of, um, of authority between the person who's telling you the truth your jerky sibling, and your parents who you normally get truthful information from. But at that moment, it's actually the jerky sibling who's telling you the truth, and it's your parents who are lying. Another thing that I think keeps uh, the Santa Claus myth alive is repetition, which is what one of you just said. It's not just that they hear it from their parents. They hear it all over the place. It's in cartoons. It's in movies. It's in advertisements. So this advertisement is from Coca-Cola, and I think it has two things that it is um, perpetuating. One, the Santa Claus myth, and two, the idea that Coca-Cola is somehow desirable. Okay, so in my book, Political Brands, I look at different aspects of American political life that are being rebranded. And so each chapter is named something like branding treason, branding greed, branding corruption, and branding tragedy. Now, for this evening, I'm going to focus on branding tragedy. Okay, here's your next opportunity to participate. If I say Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, there are probably two things that come to mind. Can anyone give me one of them? Yeah, in the back. Gun violence. That's what I was thinking of. Anything else? This is actually a real person. <laughs> um, she was an environmentalist. She's... She was uh, integral in protecting the Everglades in Florida, and that is why there is a high school named after her. But the connotation of her name now tends to bring up images like this. So this was taken on Valentine's Day in 2018, the day of the shooting at this high school. And what you're seeing here is the the students walking out of their own high school with their hands raised to show that they are not armed, that they are not the gunmen. And I think there are lots of different ways that you could think about Parkland. You could think about this as a failure of gun control. You could think about it as a failure of mental health care in the United States. But because I'm a campaign finance lawyer, I think of Parkland and its aftermath as a money and politics story. And let me explain why. So part of appreciating why this is a money in politics story is thinking about how money in politics works more generally in the United States. So one of the things that I do uh, is I make a lot of spreadsheets. Um, one of the things I track is are publicly traded corporations that you could buy on the New York Stock Exchange, for example, uh, are they spending in politics? Are they using the rights that they got in 2010 from the Supreme Court in Citizens United versus FEC. And spoiler alert, yes, yes they are. Um, and in this is sort of typical. Chevron tends to be the biggest uh, on the record publicly traded corporation that spends in politics. Now in the interest of time, I'm not going to make you suffer through these data sheets, but I'm just showing you that I have them. Um, and this is the um, the big trend. So Corporations, right after Citizens United, only a handful were spending, and they were spending a sort of relatively small amount. But each cycle, more corporations spend, and the amount in aggregate that they are spending goes up. And there's a reason why I colored my blobs uh, red. It's because almost all of this corporate money is going towards the Republicans, Only this tiny, tiny little sliver. There's like a little, and I always wonder if it's like, it was a mistake that (laughs) they got this money. But um, almost all of it is going to the Republican Party. Now, or Republican candidates. And I find this remarkable for, for a number of reasons. One, it is so skewed to one side. And the other thing that I find sort of remarkable about this is corporations are made up in part by employees who work there. And the employees who work there tend to be ideologically heterogeneous. And one of the ways you can see this is if you look at not what the corporation is doing in politics, but if you look at what employees are doing in politics, it's a very different story. So this is a data graphic that shows about 30 different U.S. corporations. Like each line is a different corporation. The blue bar is the money that's going to the Democratic candidate from uh, employees of that corporation, and then the pink bar is money going to Republican candidates from that corporation. And I think what you can see at a glance, even if you can't read like every single name, is that all of these corporations, from the point of view of the employees who actually work there, are bipartisan. There's no such thing as a, like an all-Republican firm or an all-Democratic firm. And this is true even if you look at our big political spender, Chevron, So this is from the last election, the midterm. The money going from the corporate PAC skews heavily Republican. But if you look at the money that's coming from Chevron employees, it actually skewed Democratic in 2018. And fun fact, the candidate of choice of Chevron employees in 2018 was Beto O'Rourke. So... All the data that I just showed you is the money that you can actually trace, which is done on the record. But the reason why I think that is not the full story is there has been an enormous amount of dark money that has been spent at the federal level since Citizens United. So here's how the dark money has flowed. Um, It peaked in 2012 when President Obama was running for re-election. I sort of predict that we're likely to see a similar peak in 2020, with Trump running for re-election. And all of this, if you add it together between Citizens United and today, there have been a billion dollars in dark money spent in federal elections alone.
3: I didn't How do
1: you know know it's dark? Oh, so, good question. What I mean by dark, yes, define your terms, is... Money that is spent in politics where you can't tell who the underlying donor is. So you can see it's being spent in politics, but if you go and you know, pull the forms, it, it, because of the way the, the Federal Election Commission deals with uh, transparency in politics, which is poorly, you are allowed to spend millions of dollars in politics and list zero donors. And if, if you're a zero donor um, entity, that's what's captured by this slide. So the reason I care about dark money is I I care about accountability in our democracy. And so if you compared the the on-the-record money from publicly traded corporations in the last presidential election, it would be that tiny yellow slice. And then if you compared it to the dark money that was spent in 2016, that's the rest of the circle. Now, because I do this all day, I strongly suspect that there are more publicly traded corporations and even privately held corporations that are spending in that dark area, but that's the problem with dark money. You don't know if it's a bunch of Girl Scouts or if it's Exxon. Now, you can tell the conduits of dark money, and in 2016, the biggest uh, conduit of dark money was the National Rifle Association, better known by its initials the NRA. So we could think about what would accountability look like for the NRA. For a while I thought it would look like this. This is the special counsel, and I thought he would be a little bit more interested in what the NRA was up to, but at least his redacted report does not seem to bear that out. So instead, what accountability has looked like for the NRA has been these teenagers. So these teenagers are survivors of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I think what they are up to is they are trying to break the causal links in the chain that they think led to the death of their um, classmates and teachers. And I think those causal links for them are the NRA, politicians, and corporations who support both. And here are some examples of how they have tried to break some of these chains. So Publix is my local uh, grocery store. I'm from Florida as well. And the Parkland survivors picked a big fight with Publix. And they did that because Adam Putnam was running for governor last year, and they realized that Publix was the corporate entity, as well as individuals associated with the corporate entity, were supporting Adam Putnam. And the reason that they found that objectionable is Putnam would refer to himself as an NRA sellout, and he would brag about his a rating from the NRA. And again, those are words from Adam Putnam, these are not words that the Parkland students are putting in his mouth. And because they uh, saw such a close association between the NRA and Putnam, they decided to protest Publix for supporting him. And so what they decided to do was they held a die-in at the Publix that is closest to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And they are very media savvy, so they called um, the, the press, And I don't know if you can read it, but this is an AP photo. So this went far and wide. And I'll put a pin in what happened next. But another thing that the Parkland students did is they organized a huge march in Washington called the March for Our Lives. And if you watch that on TV, you might have noticed that a lot of the student activists were wearing these price tags that said $1.05. And it may not have been totally clear to you what that was about. But here is an explanation. So this figure comes from looking at how much the NRA has spent in favor of Marco Rubio, and then they divided it by the number of students in the state of Florida. And that's how they came up with the idea that to Marco Rubio, uh, their lives are only valued at a dollar and five cents. So we could ask the question, has there been accountability post-Parkland? Publix definitely got the message. Um, After that die-in, they decided they would end their corporate political donations immediately. What's harder to suss out is Putnam loses his primary. He may have lost that primary to DeSantis in any event, but I don't think the protests from the Parkland students could have helped him. Um, And another open question is whether... The the student's ire at Rubio, for example, will last until his next election, which is still three years in the future. Now, I think if we're being honest, political protests might often do very little, even one as big as the March for Our Lives, which filled the streets of Washington the day that it happened. But you never know whose attention you might catch when you have a political protest like this. And one of the things that happened after the March for Our Lives was um, con- the, the Parkland students continued to put pressure on corporations to break their ties with the NRA. And all of these brands who used to give discounts to NRA members decided to end their discounts with uh, NRA after Parkland. Another entity that definitely got the message from the Parkland students with the governor of New York. So the governor of New York has enormous regulatory power over banks and insurance companies who are either based in New York or do so much business in New York that they are regulated by the state. And the governor uh, basically made it clear that insurance companies and banks should reassess their relationship with the NRA. And he specifically uh, talked about the Parkland shooting as a reason why these corporations should reassess their relationship with the NRA, uh, and then about a month later, after he made that statement, there was uh, he, they really used their regulatory power. So the state of New York took the position that a certain insurance product that was being sold by the NRA, called Carry Guard, which was being underwritten by Chubb and Lockton, was in violation of state law. So they The state told the underwriters to cease and desist. They did. Uh, They were also hit with uh, multi-million dollar fines. So because of all of this, the NRA is now suing Governor Cuomo. And the NRA is saying that Cuomo has so poisoned the the water between the NRA and insurance companies that the NRA, the nonprofit organization, can't get insurance for its day-to-day operations. In this same lawsuit, uh, they also claim that they are nearly broke. And so depending on your view of all of this, this could be a form of accountability for the NRA. And this is why I work on things like disclosure, because I think a good disclosure law really is worth its weight in gold. If the Parkland students can't identify that Publix is supporting Putnam, then they can't put pressure on Publix or Putnam. And I also would say that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you think that what Governor Cuomo did to the NRA is completely obnoxious and or unconstitutional, I think you should be able to see who his political supporters and donors are and put pressure on them if you think what uh, Governor Cuomo did was inappropriate. And so, um, closing up, I think there is a real branding battle between the NRA and the Parkland survivors. And part of that branding battle is who is the real victim of Parkland? I think if you ask most people, they would say the victims of Parkland are the students and the teachers who died there, and then the students and the teachers who survived that particular attack. But I think in certain quarters, if you asked who is the victim of Parkland and the uh, aftermath, they would say that the NRA is the victim here. And this sort of brings us back full circle to. Uh, Santa Claus. So who's going to win this branding war? Well, the Parkland students and the NRA will try to influence the public through networks of trust, Uh, whether that's your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, uh, mainstream media. For a while there, the NRA had this thing called NRA TV, where they were trying to communicate with gun owners directly That is now defunct, and that sort of goes to the truth of their filing in the the case against Cuomo, that they are broke. Um, Then I think both sides will try to appeal to deep psychological needs and wish fulfillment. So I think for the students, it's a desire for safety. I think for a lot of NRA members, it's a desire for for liberty. And then there's this question of who is the truth teller, and can you dismiss a truth teller? So very early on, when it was clear that the media was going to focus on the survivors of Parkland, there was this sort of wild accusation out of the NRA that some of the student leaders weren't real students, didn't go to the school, hadn't experienced the shooting, and they were accused of being crisis actors. And you could see why the NRA would try this. These teenagers who, you know, in most circumstances we don't spend a lot of time listening to teenagers and taking them seriously and these teenagers were being taken seriously in very important places like corporate boardrooms and so you accuse them of being crisis actors so that you can undermine their effectiveness as messengers and then finally repetition who has the bigger noise machine here I mean, I think if you had asked me the day before Parkland, if there's a fight between the NRA and a group of teenagers, who do you think will win? I would have put my money on the NRA because they've been around for over 100 years and they have an enormous noise machine. But this sort of shows the power of clever uses of social media and um, mainstream media for that matter, because right now the NRA is sort of. Teetering on imploding in part because of very bad management at the top and the Students from March for our lives seem to be soldiering on so I will leave it there. Thank you
2: Um, All right, let me ask you just two questions, and then I'll open it up first really is about um, Why did you choose the lens of branding to look, I mean, you're making an a generalized critique okay. of the political system, of the campaign finance system, of politics, of parties, of candidates, etc. Mm-hmm. But why why think of it as about through the lens of branding?
1: Well, um, part of my post Citizens United work was trying to figure out how can I incentivize huge corporations to forego. Their Citizens United rights to spend in politics. And it strikes me that for many corporations, the most valuable um, thing that they own is actually their brand. And one way of thinking about that is say uh, all of the craft factories um, burn to the ground, but they still have the craft name. The craft name is probably worth more than the burned down factories. And that is true of many different brands where the goodwill that you have built up in that, that brand name is actually the most valuable thing that the corporation has. And so I thought, well, in most cases, getting involved in a political fight is sort of stupid from a branding point of view because uh, you, you're likely to alienate either one political party or the other by choosing sides in a political fight or even in a cultural fight. I mean, there have been a lot of different fights around um, gay marriage and the bathroom bills. Uh, And so when you pick a side in those fights, you are likely to alienate part of your customer base or even part of your shareholder base. So that's sort of where I started about five years ago. And then we elected Trump president. And then I had to really think about, wait a minute. (laughs) We elected a brand president, and he uses branding techniques all the time. For example, his, um, he can really stay on message. So when he calls the press fake news or when he calls the press the enemy of the people and he says it like 10 times a day, he's doing it on purpose. It is cementing that idea in the minds of the public, whether you agree with him or not. It just, it's insidious. But that's a branding technique. Um, and he is just so effective at that. And meanwhile, uh, for the most part, I find leftists socket branding. They are awful. Like, you know, <laughs> we can write books that are heavily footnoted. You know, it, it, it's much more difficult to get like the catchphrase or the bumper sticker to sell a particular um, complex policy agenda. So... You know, it's so much easier for him. You know, build a wall. That gives you a, a point of view. It gives you his position on immigration. It gives the impression that he wants to make America safe from some unknown uh, intruder. Uh, and it's easy to remember. It's easy to say. It, it like it works on sort of multiple levels. Anyway, so. Part of writing this book was just like therapy for myself, <laughs> trying to figure out like what do we do in 2016? And how do we either avoid this or uh, mitigate it? And it was sort of fascinating because one of the things I ended up getting into was the Russian attack on the 2016 election. And one of the ways that the Russians attacked us was by essentially branding um, some of the Russian operatives they pretended that they were African-Americans and they would insinuate themselves into conversations with real African-Americans here. And after they had insinuated themselves into those conversations, the thing that they would repeat over and over and over again to these poor Americans who like, sort of walked into this hall of mirrors that was created by the Russians was either... um, vote third party in 2016 or don't vote at all. And they repeated it and, repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it and repeated it. And and I think that is branding. Like part of the Russian attack was a branded attack specifically at black voters. and And we'll never know for sure, because I think it's almost impossible to sort of suss out, you know, how many black voters actually saw these attacks um, and how many were influenced by it and how many was that the the thing that tipped their voting behavior from being a voter to being a non-voter as opposed to the average black voter not being inspired by Hillary Clinton. It's it's going to be very, I think, difficult to pull those pieces apart. Um, But what you can see is a significant drop off between Black voters who turned out for Obama twice and then sat out uh, the 2016 election, which is a very long answer to your question. All
2: right, but a good one. Uh, Chara said that she, while she's a book author, she's a general democracy advocate and a law professor and a Supreme Court watcher, and, a, uh, and that she's more than happy to engage in a discussion on any of those things. So I'll just start off with one, my one other question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on a panel uh, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm at Fairfield University, and the topic that they threw out to the, the people who are on the panel was, is American democracy reeling hmm. or resilient? Uh, sort of a health checkup hmm. um, on American democracy today. So what would you say? Are we reeling or are we resilient? Well, there were
1: many different aspects of the 2016 election that in real time I found troubling, including just the depressed voter turnout in 2016. And so I think if you had asked me that question the day after, once we saw the the poll returns, I would have said, we're not in a good place here. I mean, you shouldn't have something that's approaching a midterm turnout uh, in certain areas when it's a presidential year. But since then... There have been sort of glimmers of resurgency. Um, and so, one of the things that I found most encouraging in the 2018 election was the uh, resurgence of new candidates for uh, congressional races and the increased turnout in the 2018. Election would actually look a little bit more like the turnout you would expect in a normal presidential election. So I think the more that voters engage, the better we are. Because, and I, I think I said this uh, to uh, students at Northwestern yesterday I would hate for the end result of all of this political tumult to be that American voters tune out. And say, you know, a pox on both their houses, I'm sitting out this next election. So what I hope we get is um, engaged voters who actually see, oh, (laughs) elections do matter. Like, if I sit it out, then perhaps someone who uh, is contrary to my personal interests and beliefs will be elected. And I don't want that to happen again, so I have to engage, I have to engage my friends to engage my my family members, make sure we're all registered, we have the proper ID to vote in our state, and make a plan to vote in the next
3: election. Thank you so much for your talk and come speak with us today. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'm just curious. Why do you say who you are? Oh, my name is uh, Caleb Miller. I'm a visiting democracy fellow at the Ash Center. Hi. Uh, hello. Um. Is branding a new phenomenon? Is this always been part of politics? And I guess if it's always been part of politics, what kind of additional purchase do we get using the lens of branding when thinking about these kind of, you know, these, uh, yeah, this concept? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, I think that's totally fair. And no, it is not new. Um, So, in my book, I go all the way back to Eisenhower, because the branding that I, I think I'm most interested in is what happens on television, and he is basically the first television president. And... What I found sort of fascinating about the Eisenhower uh, 52 campaign is uh, so the Republican Party basically brings in Madison Avenue ad execs and they talk to Eisenhower, who is just, you know, not so long ago won World War II (laughs) or helped in that effort. And yet these ad execs um, from, uh, you know, New York City come to the conclusion that Eisenhower is a poor speaker. And so they decide that the way to sell, and they like they use this language, like sell Eisenhower to the public, is to use the same techniques they've been using to sell toothpaste. And so they um, get a song from a Broadway play called I Like Ike. They make that his campaign song. They make very short ads with eisenhower that last about 20 seconds um so that in their their estimation he can't mess up (laughs) by saying something longer and they package him they put makeup on him and they do the same thing that you would do with a commercial product and it was wildly effective against stevenson who actually runs against Eisenhower twice and lo- and loses both times and uh, you know Adelaide Stevenson just was not and he would he was self conscious about this like he Adelaide Stevenson would say to reporters, you know this is not about s- selling uh soap this is we 're running for the president here and and so Adelaide Stevenson I think was trying to hold on to some dignity in the process of electing a presidential candidate. And it, the world was sort of moving in a different direction. And Eisenhower was willing to be packaged and was, you know, even given his enormous resume, I mean, he'd been the president of Columbia and all sorts of, you know, amazing things he had done, but he was willing to conform to this new media of television and Adelaide Stevenson like, fought it tooth and nail, and I think that was ruinous for him. And I think each time in between uh, uh, 52 and uh, the present day, if you start looking for it, you can almost see who is going to lose a particular election. Because somewhere in there, they will let slip that either they hate TV or they hate being packaged in this way. And almost inevitably, it's the candidate who is willing to be packaged and sold and, like, dumbed down and, like, I don't know, monetized that is the one who wins. Like, you can find statements from Dukakis saying, I hate TV. I don't want to, you know, I can't do the sound bites. Um, You can find it from Bob Dole. um, And I think you can find that sentiment from Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. I don't think she was comfortable getting... Marketed in the way that it seems to take uh, to win an American election. Nick,
4: hi. Uh, this, many thanks for that. My name is Nick Carter. I'm a what am I? I'm a technology and democracy fellow at the Ash Center, and also work in uh, civic engagement philanthropy. And you know, just to point out, you know, I think the scourge of dark money also applied to you know applies to a lot of progressive causes as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one thing that the Parkland kids did really well is that they distanced themselves from some of the professional advocates and really wanted to be an authentic organizing force. Mm -hmm. But I do know for a fact that money did flow into C4s working on that. So Mm -hmm. we we should be mindful that, you know, the the scourge of dark money is is an issue. I actively am on the progressive side of it. um, But, you know, just want to clarify that. And then so I'm not as familiar with your writings as I would like to be, uh, but this presentation has been great. When it comes to, you know, corporate like GOTV programs, Mm -hmm. even here at the Ash Center and at the Kennedy School, there's a lot of corporations that participate in democracy entrepreneur efforts and other, um, you know, corporations doing voter registration on their websites. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think this is good or bad? Should corporations stay completely out of any voter uh, activities? And then the second question, if we're good on time, around identity politics. And I think there's a very Mm. active argument right now about issues being the way to get new voters, low-propensity voters engaged. And others who say, you know, this is really about tribalism, identity politics, Mm. and, you know, branding around that. And do you see this more of which camp do you think this branding point of view lends itself to uh, in that discussion? Okay. Thank
1: you. So on the first question of whether corporations should uh, be in get out the vote efforts. Um, one of the things that's like, I feel like everything sort of became miniature as I edited it and got it into the book so that I could get to my page limit for my publisher. Um, but one of the things that I think is still in there is um, there was a time to vote campaign from certain corporations And what that meant was they would give you the day off of of election day so that you could actually um, go vote and they wouldn't dock your pay because you would um, exercise the franchise. And I think that is um, very encouraging, especially if it is done on a truly nonpartisan basis. Um, What I think gets a lot creepier in the corporate political context are things like the coal miners who were forced to show up for a mandatory Trump rally, whether they wanted to be there or not, it was considered work for them. And if they didn't show up to the the mandatory Trump rally, they could risk uh, losing that day of pay, certainly, and being fired. And it's it's that part of it where you basically have a captive audience in your employees that I get very antsy about. I mean, and for me, it doesn't matter whether it's a mandatory Obama uh, (laughs) political event or a mandatory Trump political event if the people who are there are not there willingly. Um, Because I think that is just, (laughs) like, it just makes my skin crawl. Um, So I think there is a difference between giving people a day off of work so that they can exercise a free moral choice to vote for who they want to vote for That, I think, is probably benign and maybe to be encouraged. Um, But the other version of it, which is basically you have to conform to whatever the CEO's political view is of that moment, that just makes me a little ill. Um, So, uh, what was the second question? Oh, identity politics. Um, Aha. So, one of the things I did not understand, because my background is not in psychology, um, was how deeply rooted the instinct to be either liberal or conservative is. Um, and it's a little bit bonkers, but you can, at least psychologists say that they can tell from behavior of basically preschool and, um, and kindergartners where those individuals are likely to end up on a political spectrum. And the the difference seems to be how you deal with threats. If you deal with threats poorly, like you think it's a very threatening world, then you sort of crave order and you end up on the conservative side of politics. On the other side, if you are sort of much more open to new experiences, like you don't see a threat around every corner, then you're much more likely to be open to new experiences, to other people, and then you are likely as an adult to end up on the liberal end of the political spectrum. And in some ways, I find this particular like read of like how deeply rooted some of these things are horrifying, because it's already difficult enough to get uh liberals and conservatives to have sort of reasonable discussions in certain contexts to me if it's actually innate it's even worse <laughs> like then we have to try even harder if it if it really is at a deep psychological level that i was always predetermined to be liberal because part of my gri- like my brain chemistry is that way but I still think there is value in reaching across aisles and trying to break out of um, each of the information silos that we sort of put ourselves in. I guess one thing that we haven't discussed this evening yet is uh the the role of Facebook and Twitter and Google in reinforcing your political beliefs. And part of this, I think, started from a good place at the at these companies what they wanted to do is give you the information that you were really looking for. So, for example, with Google, um, they are trying to give you uh, the search results that are actually responsive to what you were actually looking for. And so what this ends up doing from a political standpoint is Google can pick up on partisan cues. And so if you keep on clicking on left-leaning leaning. News, then the Google algorithm will give you more left leaning news in your search results, which is going to lead you to click on more left leaning news, which the algorithm is going to notice and it will give you more left leaning material. And this happens on the right as well. If you keep on clicking on right leaning material, it'll give you more right leaning material to the point where. If you have two individuals, one uh, more conservative and one more liberal, they're sitting at a coffee shop side by side. They do a search for the same thing. They will get very different search results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, if you want to think about the four-year-old and their information silo, that they're only getting information from their parents, and then this particular lie gets amplified by what they happen to see, which tends to be like children's cartoons that also have Santa, we are sort of doing that to ourselves as well in terms of getting information from whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Google where the the algorithms in the background are pushing us to one uh, ideological extreme or another. Yes?
4: Hi, my name is Danny. I'm an MPP student. Um, you've talked about the role of of branding and misinformation in politics, but also just dumbing down complex mm-hmm. events and ideas. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the ways that we could kind of combat these
1: issues, or what are the like ways to solve some of those? So you want it not dumbed down?
4: <laughs> I think that that's a problem mm-hmm. in in our society and um, democracy. So like, what are the steps, I guess, to either misinformation
1: or... The fact that maybe not the best politician wins, but the one who's better at branding? Yeah. Um, I mean, my sort of nightmare scenario is that a well-branded, media-savvy um, charlatan will be able to beat a uh, competent, complex, uh, serious candidate. And the way that they will do that is by um, making messages that are easily digestible. Now, you know, the Harvard girl in me is like, why can't we all be smarter? (laughs) But, um, and maybe this is just the side effect of having done this work. I actually think that leftists have to get better at branding if they're going to win some of these battles, which are not, um, you know, in a court of law. It's in a court of public opinion. And if people can't understand what you were saying, then it's hard for them to get on your side. Um, and so I think part of it is figuring out, you know, what's the essence of the thing that I am trying to explain, uh, and making it more digestible. Like it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the book with 300 footnotes, uh, and
2: You have 500 in here. Ah,
1: There you go. <laughs> Touché. Um, but, for example, um, just this morning, uh, I have a piece out in Teen Vogue. And it's about branding. And it's about branding in the 2020 election. And so I talk about Beto O'Rourke's uh, branding. He has this um, T-shirt which says... Uh, more explicitly than I'm going to say now, this is effed up, this is effed up, this is effed up. And this is a reference to something he said after two shootings in Texas this summer. Um, And the sale of the It's Effed Up uh, shirt is going towards March for Our Lives and Moms Demand Progress, which are two um, gun control groups. but it is remarkable for a presidential candidate to be selling things in his presidential candidate store that says it's effed up six times, no less. Uh, And then there's Yang, who has um, T-shirts that say math, money, and marijuana, which appeals to a certain demographic, but I I feel like as a um, larger-term project... It's probably, I would think, I mean, who knows, it's a crazy electorate, that um, having marijuana on your uh, presidential campaign merch may backfire in a general election. I mean, we'll see. Who knows? Um, But what's brilliant about uh, Yang's branding is it's simple and it's direct and it, it boils down Um, three policy positions he has. So, math is uh, short for make America think harder. And so, if you see people with math blue math shirts, those are yang hats. And so, it's not just that he likes math. He does like math. But it it means make America think harder. And then the money refers to his uh, universal basic income policy. And the marijuana refers to the fact that he actually wants marijuana legalized. So, it's, you know, those are larger uh, and more complex policy positions, but he has figured out how to get it to three words. And that I feel like, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of the last one in terms of how it'll play in a general election, but how it'll play in a primary, he may be right. If you can boil it down to three talking points, that's how you may win an election. But yes, yes. Yeah that the left needs to get better at branding rather than a big, like social or political change. Well, I, I, I would also be a fan of a big social political change. But I feel like part of how you get there is talking in language that people can understand. So I was just on a panel with um, John Putner, who runs one of the only right-wing... Uh, campaign finance groups. They're very rare. But he too acknowledges there's a problem with too much money in politics. And one of the points that he made is there is an enormous part of the American electorate that is not college educated. And if you aim all of your rhetoric towards the smaller part of the electorate that is college educated, you're going to miss people. And so one of the things that I think the left needs to do a little bit better is get at that uneducated or less educated group um, because they're voters too. So you
3: are. Arturo Reynoso community. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time. I'm going to piggyback on her question. And that has to do with like, you know, when you see a situation coming at you, say the Parkland, Parkland students uh, being accused of being actors, uh-huh. crisis actors, yeah. and all of that stuff. And then you read somewhere uh, through the media that uh, Trump's organizers uh, hire, uh, you know, put out bas- basically uh, list listings to hire people to come to the rallies. Uh, we are looking for. The, People of color, primarily, we are willing to pay this much uh, for this many hours or all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who are there are not real. They are there because they need the money to work on and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you combat that? And and then also, another issue is that the political climate changes as people or the players change also. So you see uh, someone out there doing one previous uh, impeachment talking about the presidency this and the president does, and then all of a sudden changing the rules of the game mm-hmm. uh to say that you really have to be proven guilty of a crime and things like that to be you know go, to go through the process of impeachment and all, mm-hmm. all that. Stuff. so you have the players changing one way or another mm-hmm. how do you deal with that should you use the fact that you know trump's people are using crisis actors so mm-hmm. to speak to try to deal with the difference in, in, in understanding of what happens here to gain more credibility. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, kind yeah. of trying to fight, you know, like you say something like, you know, they get, it's good for the goose, it's, it's good, good for, for, for the gander. The gander. And yeah. I, you know, honestly, I have been in this country for more than 50 years. I don't know what the gander is yet. Uh,
1: <laughs> good, good point, good point. Um, so I guess a few things. I think there is this sort of problem of, I don't know, asymmetrical warfare rhetorically um, between uh, President Trump and the people who surround him and almost everyone else. So, I mean, one of the things that I find just remarkable about this particular president is, um, so the Washington Post keeps track of his lies, and it's over 10,000 in, like, when I wrote this book, like, two and a half years, and, and that that number, like, goes up almost on a daily basis um and that gives him a certain amount of power because he is not bounded by facts or reality and the rest of us are <laughs> so you know if, if i lie in my job there will be consequences uh and i think he may have finally gotten to the point where there're going to be consequences for him too but it's going to be a very weird couple of months um now well, what I find sort of interesting about Trump and impeachment is I really thought that he would be impeached after the Mueller report came out. Um, because I'm a lawyer, I will read 400 pages of legalese. And I read it, and I was like, oh, there's a, yeah, there, there are plenty of reasons, obstruction of justice all over the place to say that this person is not fit for office. And then I waited for my fellow Americans. I'm like, I know I can read faster than other people, but you will you will get there. You can do it.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: And now I realize I am in the 5% of Americans who even cracked it open, let alone finished it. And that is part of like the messaging fight. There was not a a good messaging package to explain in language that people could understand what had happened that Mueller had discovered. And then Mueller himself, when he um, testified before Congress, didn't clarify much himself, which didn't do us any favors. And so it's been very interesting to see that the Ukrainian call is the thing that is causing the impeachment uh, ball to roll down the hill finally. Um, and we'll see what happens tomorrow with the impeachment inquiry vote uh, from uh, Speaker Pelosi to the to whole House. I sort of presume that will be on, on a party line vote and that all the dumbs will say yes and all the Republicans will say no. But I think we, what we are about to see is the public version of what's been going on in the skiffs uh, up on Capitol Hill.
0: You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.